6 is where we are. Uh, the nation of Israel is just across the Jordan River. They're looking at the promised land. And Moses is now recounting to them the law. Because the generation that's going to go in is not the generation that received the law and experienced the things that the previous generation did. They've heard of them. Some of them were extremely young when those things took place. Some of them were not even born. So now he's refreshing the mentality and the teaching and the religion with this nation about what the Lord has done and what he's requiring of them and what he's going to do for them when they enter into the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your sons and your grandsons, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Several things within that short section. Uh, the first is the commandment there in verse 1, the statutes and the judgments. So we know the Ten Commandments. The statutes and the judgments are the principles that come from the commandments. The judgments are the ways that they would rule and govern given the commandments and the statutes. And the Lord is saying that they have to be careful to follow these things. You know, just to be... Uh, you know, completely back and forth on this air conditioning issue. Now that they're completely off, we'll swelter. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so so here we go. <clears throat> this is what happens when I'm not in control. So anyway, um, the, uh, the, the Lord is telling them, if you want the prosperity, if you want the fulfillment, then you have to be careful to follow these things. If you do not then this isn't just automatically going to come to you, right? Uh, we hear in our nation today people talking about what made America great. It was worship that made America great, particularly the worship of Jesus Christ. When you examine the foundational documents and you examine the private prayer journals and the private writings of the founders of this nation, what you discover is they created this nation with the freedoms that are intact within it. And you go, yeah, well, that gives freedom to all religions. Yeah, so that they could come here and be converted by the Christians that were here. The freedom was so that it didn't keep people out, right? I've seen a number of people recently. You're bringing me the control. <laughs> I've seen a number of people recently. Uh, making mention of the fact that within Ellsworth, there is an LBGTQ event that's taking place at a local children's park. And a whole bunch of people are freaking out about, how could they do that? And I said, that's awesome. 
because now we know where they'll all be and we can go there and share the Lord with them. It's a perfect opportunity for us, you guys, to go and evangelize people who desperately need the Lord. You know, it, it isn't a matter of us creating a private club where we hang out with all of our friends who think the same way. This nation wasn't formed this way. Christianity is not formed this way, right? The Old Testament is not formed that way. The Lord gives opportunity. He invites the foreigners into the land. Come into Israel and experience what worshiping the Lord is going to do for you, right? The sinfulness of all of our neighbors around us, look, if, if you're honest, we're going to talk about it, that's what all of us were. This, this is where we were, and the Lord delivered us. Okay? So, so now our job is to take that cure to anyone who will listen and to lovingly make the presentation. You know, I, I mean, are, are we going to venture into the locations where they congregate themselves? Probably not. Are they going to venture into the, con you know, the locations where we congregate ourselves? Probably not. But we get an opportunity where they've publicly announced we're all going to be gathered right over here. Wonderful. Let us go and share the Lord with them. Take advantage of these situations. When he makes this statement about their days being prolonged, okay, it's twofold. Most commonly, people promote the idea of long life. And honestly, the Lord doesn't promise that to us, right? People die from all kinds of various reasons at all kinds of various times. Right? We say, oh, they died too young. The scripture says it's appointed unto man once to die. So apparently they died exactly when they were supposed to. That stinks. For those of us that only had a short time with them and we lost them, that's a horrible experience. But from their perspective, if they're in the presence of the Lord, I mean, realistically, would you not have preferred avoiding all of the heartache you've experienced on planet Earth and to have just entered the presence of the Lord? I'm convinced that's part of the reason, at least a portion of the reason, as to why Jesus is crying when he's on his way to resurrect Lazarus. John 11:35. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the whole Bible. I think it's because not only is he resurrecting Lazarus, Lazarus is in the presence of the Lord, right? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. He's in the presence of the Lord. If I make it in the presence of the Lord and you pray for my resurrection and I end up back here, I'm going to be upset. Res Lazarus comes back here and you turn the pages into the very next chapter, just six verses later, and it says that the religious leaders hatched a plan to murder him. Welcome home, Lazarus. There's a plot to kill you. That would break your heart. You love somebody deeply, and you've got to take them from paradise in the presence of the Lord and invite them back to this miserable state of existence and then whisper in their ear, by the way, people want to kill you. Okay, this promise that we have of long, your days will be prolonged, is in the land. Meaning, 
if you screw up, as he's going to describe, and you fall away from me, and you begin to worship the idols of the pagan nations that are inside this country, then your days inside this land are going to be cut short. You know, right now, the deterioration that we're experiencing as a nation, historically, we're one of the shortest-lived nations in the world. Right? There, there were other entities and empires that lived for thousands of years. And we were like bottle rocket, just one explosive moment in history. And we've already met our decline right now. I've shared with you recently talking to people about the housing bubble of 2008, that burst, our economy collapsed and everybody's sort of freaking out, right? Some of you were actively involved in the building and the housing industry of that time and experienced the pain of that collapse. It talked to people right now. Uh, I had a conversation with a realtor. They're all completely freaked out by what's going on in the housing market right now. You know, people paying exorbitant amounts for properties, you know, paying more than the asking price, much more, huge percentages more than the asking price. You guys got one of those chips in your bank card, right? Mine failed last week. Chip won't work. Everywhere I go, everybody's cussing, you know, trying to swipe and rub it on their shirt. So I finally go to the bank and say, this isn't working. I need a new card. And we get on this subject. And the manager in the loan department gets emotional as we start talking about this. And what it's potentially doing to the banking industry. And they're saying the exact same thing. The housing industry has way overextended itself in a way historically we've never seen. And they've done that with a dependency on the banking industry, which has way overextended itself in a way we've never seen. And if things start to default, it will cause a domino effect that will collapse not only, right? Remember 2008? The, the banks were bailed out by the government, you guys. The government doesn't have the capability to do that again, especially this quickly. We, we are in so much trouble with what is going on. This statement of prolonging your days in the land comes from obeying the one who made the nation of Israel a nation. This nation has abandoned the worship of Jesus Christ wholesale and is just plummeting towards the predictable outcome of doing that. You know, that it may be well with you, as it says in verse three, this statement of flowing with milk and honey, you know, that's often just thought of as, you know, a statement of prosperity and to a degree it is, but literally what you're talking about is pasture and pollination. Does it, did, milk you know comes from the herds and and the honey comes from the pollination right read what's going on right now in the farming industry the consolidation of farms and now the collapse of farms you know the, there were more than 2300 dairy farms in the state of Maine in the late 70s when i moved here in 1978, 2,300, you know, consolidation. You know, does anybody remember being in Bangor, Footman's Dairy, Grant's Dairy, downtown Bangor? Huge dairies. 
we bought our milk directly from a farmer. You know, you stop off and drop off your glass jugs and come back and they're filled, right? There were dairy farms everywhere. Chicken farms, remember that? Wasn't those a wonderful experience? Drive by the stench of... The farms are gone, guys. The farms are gone. Look around at the farms and what they've become. What are they? Golf courses and storage units. It's crazy. As you go around, what are, we do what are we doing with what was prosperity? We're just storing our junk now and entertaining ourselves. We're entertaining ourselves. As story. I mean, you know, I don't mean to sound overly prophetic, right? Doom and gloom. But 1963, we publicly decide we do not want God in the schools. Get rid of the Bible. Get rid of prayer. From 1963 to 1973, 500% increase in violent crimes in America. By 1973, we decide we don't really want all these pregnancies. Now that we've had a sexual revolution in the 60s, we've got all these kids we don't want. Let's start aborting them. 1.3 million children killed in America every single year. 1.3 million. Con consider this, you guys, right? Everybody's a panic right now about gun violence, right? Yeah, how about this? Unarmed black Americans last year, right? You, 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 have, you have 50 occasions where unarmed black Americans were shot by police officers. 12 of them died last year. Tragic. Absolutely tragic. No one's talking about the fact that simultaneously 108 white Ameri unarmed Americans were shot by police officers and 22 of them died. Okay. Grand total, right? Less than 50 people died. Unarmed people died shot by 1.3 million American children were aborted last year. They go completely unmentioned. But not even an issue to have a discussion about why. Because it's not a child, it's a choice. We redefine everything. Are you telling me that God is not going to hold this nation accountable? What we are doing, what we are experiencing and rejecting, we are not holding to these things. We are not diligent about these things. We are not keeping these things. We have flushed them down the toilet. We've incinerated them. We've buried them. We've neglected them. Anything we could to get them out of our society. That's what we've done. Really amazing to consider the whole process. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Now this is an interesting statement. There's a huge foundational understanding of our Christian faith in this statement. Right? The nation of Israel is diametrically opposed to Jesus Christ as Messiah or as God. And they make great efforts to talk about how that's a duplicity or a multiplication of gods. That you have Jesus as God and then you have Yahweh as God. And then, you know, Christianity describing the Holy Spirit as God. They say it's three gods. That's not what the scripture is saying. It is not what Christianity is saying. It's, it's in fact, to a degree, inappropriate to say there is God the Father there is also God the Son. It's to a degree inappropriate to say that. 
because they are one God. So we'll examine some things in regard to this. To begin with, when it says, our God, right? We, we read the, the verse again here, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Okay, The term where it says, our God is Elohim. That's plural gods. Right? If you're thinking, I didn't know we were going to a language class, not really interested in this, kind of boring, you really need to get grounded in this concept, and you need to have this for many different reasons. This is central, cornerstone, foundational Christian stuff. you got to have a handle on this. Elohim means plural or multiple gods. So this is Old Testament definition, proclamation to the nation of Israel of who and what their God is. Elohim, plural, gods, is one. The Hebrew word is ekad, which literally speaks of a compound unity. So if we were to stretch it out in literal form, here, O Israel, your plural gods are unified as one God. Seems strange, considering that they are so adamant about having one God. After Jesus Christ's ministry on earth, there began a practice in the synagogues where when the Jews read this every Sabbath, they would chant the phrase, God is one, God is one, God is one. And they would use the ekad in the statement. That statement is God is unified as one. So follow these concepts. Look at these verses with me. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, says, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, so that the evening and the morning were ekad, the first day. Two separate things, morning and evening, daylight and darkness, were combined as one day. And you go, well, yeah, that's an easy concept. This is literally what God is saying about his existence. The plurality is unified as one thing. It's a solidification. How about a couple more to understand? Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, unified together in marriage. You are a couple, singular. You are a family, singular. As more children get added, as procreation occurs, that's still one unit. No matter how many you add to it, they are still that one family. The scripture teaches this idea of plural unification throughout the scriptures. Exodus chapter 26 Verses 6 and 11, during the construction of the tabernacle, you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it may be one tabernacle. And you shall make 50 bronze clasps, put the clasps in the loops and couple the tent together that it may be one. 
50 separate particles unified together to be one, we would say temple, tabernacle, the tent where they met and worshiped the Lord. A, a plurality of unification that results in one. That's our God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Consider Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That same plurality of our, us, Elohim, right? Jesus created all things according to John chapter 1. Genesis 1 says God created everything. If God created everything and Jesus created everything, then Jesus is God, unified as one being. <clears throat> Here's a, an additional thought to the whole expression. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Speaking of Jesus says, being the brightness of his God's glory and the express image of his person. We're studying Hebrews in our midweek service now and just read this verse and I gave the explanation. There used to have all kinds of different illustrations, but you probably have seen the children's toy that is a square plate, has a gajillion holes drilled in it and all these little unsharpened pins are through it and like you put your hand on the other side and you press and now you can see the image of your hand, you know, put your face on it, some weird expression and push your face through. That is literally what Hebrews means about Jesus. It's, it's the impressed image of God. The, the most direct understanding in that day was the head of a household wore a signet ring that they did business with. If he was going to make a purchase, sign the document, melt the wax, impress the ring upon the wax, and the impression is the exact representation of the family seal on the signet ring. That's what's being said of Jesus. He is the impressed, express image of God. When Jesus was walking around on earth, that was God impressing upon creation his very person, right? Philip asks Jesus to show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. Jesus says, have, you, have I been with you so long you don't recognize me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Plurality in unity is God. So it's significant and important that you understand this, uh, both to discuss it with Jews. Also, if you run into Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons that want to insist, no, Jesus is not God. He's a created being. He's the half-brother of Lucifer, or he's you know, Michael the archangel. Neither one of those things are true, and the Scripture doesn't support those at all. Jesus is God, not was God, Jesus presently is God. And it's very important that we understand that. So, continuing with this statement, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, verse 5 says, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Having a relationship with God doesn't start with obedience. It doesn't start with service. It doesn't start with effort. It starts with the heart. The heart will always make a convert of the mind and the behavior every single time. You don't want to do the thing, but you have to do the thing. So you do the thing. And in the process, you find it's not as difficult, it's not as unenjoyable, and you're able to just accomplish it and get through it. And if you continue with it long enough, eventually you discover that there's actually an enjoyment in the process. You can convert your body and your mind through loving the Lord. Just physically, purposely, obediently loving the Lord. Being committed to it. <clears throat> Anybody who's been married for any length of time knows, right, that what we describe as love in America is not what marriage is made up of, right? Romance does not preserve marriage, right? I, I hate to burst anybody's bubble, but there comes a point where, I'll just be blunt, romance dies. It doesn't survive forever. You can rekindle it. You can do a number of wonderful things to make romance work again and appear in a marriage. But there comes a point where you realize, I am married to a sinner. And I'm everything I'm experiencing is like emotional abuse. This is horrible. I need help. You know what I'm saying? Some of you don't experience this. You're, you live in a dream world and you sicken the rest of us. You know what I'm saying? It's just <clears throat> the reality is all of us are sinners, right? Commitment, commitment, right? That, in fact, when you look at the biblical definition of love, that has more to do with what love is. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You're not going to feel flowery all the time. It's not going to happen. I can tell you right now, if you'll invest in the thing. I always use broken down pickup trucks as my example for this. It's stupid, but guys understand it sometimes. <clears throat> you, you, you will run into men, especially in Maine, where they are driving some brilliant piece of absolute junk. <clears throat> just like you're like wondering like how are they getting fuel in that you know so made half out of wood i don't know what is going on does that is that a legitimate inspection sticker how did you what do you <clears throat> don't you dare say anything negative about the truck why because they've invested in it like you can't believe they've had it since 1978 and they, and they got this big long story about all they've done and just They've invested in it. Therefore, it is valuable to them. They are in love with it. You know, their wives are wishing they would get rid of it and they just keep the stupid thing around. No? Not not the proper illustration, right? Some of you own motorcycles that are the same way. It hasn't run in 10 years, but you won't get rid of it. Why? Because of the investment you made in it. You have an emotional investment in it. You can do the same thing with your marriage. You can do your same thing with your relationship with the Lord. Invest. Invest and you will fall in love. 
It's, it's a biblical principle, right? Jesus said, where your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart soul, and mind. As you read through the scripture and you recognize what is right about these passages, that's when you just go, this is a proper investment. This is the correct decision. I've invested in so many other stupid things, and it hurt me so badly. It robbed me. It took from me. It did not return well to me. The scripture promises good returns. Invest in your relationship with the Lord, and you'll see the love rejuvenated in the process. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. In your heart is where these things need to be. Not, listen, I totally, you guys know, I totally appreciate what we refer to as apologetics. Head knowledge, right? All of the different facts and the figures and the circumstances and the archaeological digs and the scientific explanations. I love that stuff. But your head full of those things, right, isn't the thing that's going to change your behavior and your heart and ultimately your whole life. It has to do with the heart. Do you love it? Are you committed to it? Do you want it? Do you want it? If you don't want it, you're not going to stick with it. That comes from the investment that I spoke of moments ago. Investing. Right in time, in money, you can always tell when a guy has fallen in love. He was cruising along, maybe looking for an opportunity, doing fine, but suddenly he disappears. You don't see him anymore. And when you finally hunt him down and discover what's going on, well, I've been hanging out with this gal. Oh. The time you used to invest elsewhere is now consolidated into one beautiful person. You have fallen in love. And you're suddenly taking showers and putting on deodorant and, you know, taking people out to eat and, you know, putting gas in your car when, you know, you would not, you know, have put five bucks in to drive across town to do something important. You could wait two more days. But because there is love involved, you will invest frivolously. So it is in our relationship with the Lord. If we will let our hearts, through investment, be converted, then the emotion follows. Make the commitment. Make the commitment. Invest the time. Invest the money. Buy yourself a nice Bible. I hear this one all the time. I don't read well. Great. A whole bunch of people don't read well. You got no excuse. Do you have a smartphone? Like, who doesn't nowadays? You know what I'm saying? You could buy an old clunky used one that's not even attached to a system anywhere and start listening to the Bible. Right? You probably got an old iPod tucked away in a drawer somewhere that hasn't been updated in six years. Plug that thing in. Put the word of God on that. Start listening daily, <clears throat> investing in it, <clears throat> putting time and effort into it. 
I've got so much money wrapped up <clears throat> in Bible study software, it's <clears throat> probably irresponsible. <laughs> you know, eSword and Logos and Olive Tree, and I've probably got several hundred dollars on each of those platforms. You know, on my phone, on my computer, on a tablet. I can log on on your phone. I can, you know, access my stuff, utilize all the time, read, research, take in, investing in. It's very important, very significant. I'm always reading a book. I, I have a stack of books that I'm presently working through always. There's one more. Get it done. I'll take them all out and rearrange them because, okay, I've heard some more stuff about this one. This needs to move closer to the top so that when I get done with this one, I'm moving into that one. Learning, growing, absorbing. It's a necessary thing, the investment of time. Verse 6, as we read, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently. I would encourage you to underline that three-word phrase. Teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as the frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The three-word phrase of teach them diligently would best be translated in a literal way into English of continuously sharpen in the same direction. Continuously sharpen in the same direction. So consider what is being said here. Speaking of your children and teaching them and training them. Here, here's the thought. The conversations you have, the things you teach, what you show, what you present, what they're constantly exposed to, that's all cutting into their life in a specific direction. If you, in your faith, are sharpening your children toward the Lord continuously, refining their understanding, teaching them the things of the Scripture, but then... For large portions of every single day, you hand them over to someone else who goes against the things you've taught them and they sharpen in a different direction. Say, for instance, the public school system. As they are teaching secular humanism and things that you wouldn't possibly imagine ever teaching your children or exposing them to. Consider this, Joseph Stalin, right? Profound foundational figure in communism said, America is like a healthy body and its resistance is threefold. It's patriotism, it's morality, and it's spiritual life. If we can undermine these three areas, America will collapse from within. That's amazing. When you consider what we're seeing going on all around us. 
and what's being taught. How about this? This is the Communist Party USA. I think that's a tragedy that that is even allowed to exist. But Communist Party USA. They said, infiltrate the institutions of America and take them over from it within. First goal, promote cohabitation versus marriage. That's the Communist Party's mentality and their teaching. Where else are you seeing that in your culture? Everywhere, right? Promote cohabitation. Renounce, denounce marriage. Get children away from families as soon as possible. This is their spoken goal. As far as a communist organization, get the kids away from their families. The movement right now, you guys, for universal daycare, you know, that children as soon as mothers can go back to work would be turned over to the state. That's part of this plan. We should be in strong opposition to this. How about support the feminist movement to create a disconnect from motherhood? That's a, a stated goal of the Communist Party. Promote feminism so that women will have a disdain for even being a mother. That's all through our culture. Everywhere we look, that's, that's all through our culture. Promote career, promote education, promote anything above motherhood. Where would any of us be without a mother? Well, our culture's seeing it more and more, aren't we? Consider this. Support the environmental movement. Communist Party, USA, in order to destroy American businesses. Make everyone more concerned about the environment than they are about businesses, which is thereby the economy, which is thereby the family. The things that our culture is doing are against God's principles. They are against God's teachings, against God's mandates. You want to see the country be healthy, the family has to be healthy. If the family is not doing this, diligently sharpening our children with the same cut and grain of the scripture over and over and over. How, how do you learn things? Right? How about those useless, useless lyrics we talk about all the time? Like you can probably, I don't know, just probably a song and a band just popped into your head. And the reason you know it so adamantly is because you've listened to that song endlessly. Even if you didn't want to, pop radio will play it at least six times an hour. You're going to hear that over and over and over. It's the repetition that creates the learning, the understanding, and the commitment to these things. That's where we need to be as parents. This started from as young as I can remember in my life. As a teenager, I rebelled against Christianity, and I went my own way, but those things were cut into my soul. You know, some of you guys grew up around Baptist churches, Bible drills, right? Bible youth camps. 
You know, just all the kids sit with their Bible above their head like this, and somebody calls out a verse, and you got to drop the Bible and scramble through and get to it as fast as you can, and you stand right up. First person that stands up gets to read that Bible verse. You know, stand every day and quote every one of the books of the Bible to them, prize at the end. Repetition, ingraining into our families and our children the things of the Scripture. I don't want to ram it down their throat. I don't want to make them choose the things I have chosen. Billy Graham posed the question. In doing that, what are you afraid of? That you're going to scare your children into hell number two? If they're already headed there, you're going to rescue their soul from it. You're not going to drive them any further away. If they're not already following the Lord, then they're already headed to an eternity separated from God. You may as well do everything you can to constantly and in every way. You know, my daughters have seen me many times, many times, standing in the checkout line, and there's that rack of magazines, this pornographic garbage. And I'm talking about, you know, magazines like Vanity Fair and Cosmopolitan and People and all of that junk. Pornographic garbage. Just filling my eyes and my children's eyes and just start turning magazines around backwards. You know, people have even said to me, hey, those aren't yours. And I would just say, thank God. Turn them around. You know, the scene comes into the movie, just shut the movie off. We're not watching that. Go to something else. Watching a movie, some things, a little edgy. Now they take my Lord's name in vain. All done. They've learned the process. They've been taught continuously over and over and over again so that when they have to make these choices themselves, bind them upon your hands, meaning it should always be in your hand, the Word of God constantly ready between the frontlets of your eyes. It should always be visible in your life. The Word of God should be everywhere that you go, posted on the doorframe of your house, you know, that plaque. That your crazy Christian aunt had. That was completely appropriate, you know. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Constantly making the presentation that my house, my life, my car, my existence, my everything is about the Lord. People go, oh man, you know, you're so heavenly minded, you know, earthly good. That's not possible. It's not possible. To be so heavenly minded that you know worth the good. Oh, it's possible to be, right, pride-filled, arrogant, self-righteous jerk. That's a different thing. Being so heavenly minded that you affect everyone around you that they're aware of it. Oh, that's the best good you can provide to any environment that you're in. Constantly making that presentation. Our culture has rejected this. How about this? I found this. This is interesting. In the early 1990s, U.S. News and World Report put together a comparison survey. They found these were the major problems for public school teachers of America reported in the 1940s. Ready for this? So just slap yourself in the face because of the warmth and pay attention. Major problems in the public school system, 1940. Talking out of turn. Can you imagine? Chewing gum. 
was a horrifying statistic at the time. Chewing gum. Making noise, just in general, being noisy, disrupting the classroom. Running in the halls. How did they live with this? Right? Cutting in line. <clears throat> Major problem. Cutting in line. You know, getting in front of other people. Dress code violations. And, and one of the worst, littering. 1940s. 50 years later, 1990s was when this was done. Number one problem, drug abuse. Second problem, alcohol abuse. Third problem, pregnancy, suicide, rape, robbery, and assault. That's what they were dealing with most prominently. And how about this, you guys? That was the early 90s. The shooting at Columbine High School hadn't even occurred yet. The multiple shootings that have taken place. It's gotten so bad, we can't even measure, right? We don't even notice. Like, if I put it up right now, none of us would probably even know if, if you're allowed to chew gum in school, right? We'd be like, I, is that a problem? I don't even know, right? These problems have eclipsed, eclipsed everything else. Why? Because we've rejected God. We have not repeatedly sharpened our children upon it, right? I don't mean to embarrass anybody, but... Will you please raise your hand if you went to school, if you're old enough that you went to school when the day started with prayer and the Bible? That's a dramatic change. That there's a larger portion in this room that there was no prayer, there was no Bible in the school. Look at our culture. Look at what's going on. You don't like it? It upsets you? You're concerned about your children, your family, your circumstances? Invest in the Word of God in their life. Repetition. Constantly. Giving. Teaching. Declaring. Showing. Training. In the Word of God. You must do these things. i got to hurry. i got like three more hours here. So, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> Verse 10. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just a few more minutes, guys. Bear with me. To give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build. Houses full of all good things which you did not fill. Hewn out wells which you did not dig. Vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant when you have eaten and are full. Now I'll pause right there in the middle of that. When you are eaten and in full, the trouble's going to come. The trouble's going to come. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50. The prophet rebukes the nation of Israel and calls Sodom, that was destroyed, Sodom and Gomorrah, her sister. Look, this is the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, and they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. Just quoting Billy Graham a lot today, 
Billy said, if God does not punish America, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology for the things we are and the things we have done. Verse 12, when you <clears throat> are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him, shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. Listen, we in this room have worshipped false gods. Our nation is presently worshipping false gods. Satan was clever enough through the centuries to remove the actual idol image and the name and just leave in place the behavior of worshiping those particular gods, right? If you went into the nation of Israel and went into the promised land, if you were going to be sexually perverted, you would have worshiped Ashtoreth at the time. If you wanted to be engaged in sexual sin and your child that was born you didn't want, you would put it to death as you worshipped Molech. If you wanted to become incredibly successful and powerful and have lots of money, you would have worshipped mammon. If you like to party and enjoy the pleasures of the world and get drunk and experience intoxication in many different forms, then you would have worshipped Bacchus. The idol's gone, the temple's gone, the name is gone, the behavior's still in place. Our culture is thoroughly engaged in all of these things. All of the same acts of worship. Verse 16, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Mesa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to cast out all the enemies from before you, as the Lord has spoken. All these different plans, we're going to vote in this guy, we're going to get this legislation, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. We need to exercise all of those rights, but in the end, without the Lord, we're engaged in a hopeless task. It has to be that we worship God, and he gives us victory in all of these areas. The turnaround is in his hands, not ours. We worship him. He fixes the situation. Close it out, verse 20. When your sons ask you in time to come, saying, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Listen, if you were a hedonistic sinner and were delivered by Jesus Christ into the Christian life, you have an obligation to share your shameful past with your children. You need to talk to them about the bondage that you were in and what Christ delivered you from. Because they're going to have the same temptations, right? You look at them as that beautiful, you know, shining child, and you're like, oh, I just don't want to pollute them. You watch them. They're going to get polluted. 
Because the land around them is going to be incredibly invasive. What they need to know is how to get out of it when it has ensnared them. And if they know you went through the same struggles, you don't have to horrify them with the nightmarish stories of your past. But they need to know you were in bondage and you were delivered by the power of Jesus Christ. You need to be ready to share that with them. So that they'll come to you and say, I'm a mess. What do I do here? How do I get out of this? And you can walk with them through the process. Don't be ashamed of the deliverance that Christ gave you. It's a glorious tool to be used in the hands of our king. Verse 22, And the Lord showed signs and wonders before your eyes, great and severe, against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. Then he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in. Not that he would destroy us, not that he would abandon us, not that he would burden us with legalism. He brought us out that he could bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. If we are careful, careful to observe. If we do not, then we're going to experience the repetition, right? The failure of the circumstances. It needs to be that our personal commitment to Jesus Christ is demonstrated to the whole world. Every opportunity you get. Um, in the 70s, the last real revival that happened in America was referred to as the Jesus Movement. And the coin tag that the unbelieving world put upon Christians was Jesus Freak. Oh, the Jesus Freaks. To which we said amen. Yes, I am a freak for Jesus. The fanatic term comes, right, through the filter you end up with fan. You know, whatever your sports team is. Are you a fan? The root word of that is fanatic. And when we're screaming our heads off and we've painted our faces and we're jumping up and down, and spilling our drink and having a fit, people go, isn't that wonderful? They love their team so much. Looks like a lot of fun. But if we stand up and we sing boldly and we shout and we raise our hands, they go, lunatics. Look at the Jesus freaks. To which I say, look at the Jesus freak. I'm into it. Because I was a freak for a lot of other things for a lot of years. And I might as well be truthful about my fanaticism over Jesus Christ. That the world would see it, ask questions, and perhaps be delivered from their own bondage. Amen? Amen. Well, unless you guys want to go into chapter 7. Okay, let's stand and we'll pray. I know how committed you are. Committable, commendable. I don't know where it is. Father, thank you very much for your love, your graciousness, your work in our lives. Thank you for your deliverance. Lord, we pray that you would continue the work that you have begun in us. 
we would find ourselves surrendered to you, that we would be able to deliver others. Give us opportunity. Help us to share your love with a sick and dying world around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.